This morning, we're going to actually resume our study in the Gospel of Luke. And so we're going to pick up where we left off. We had started the Gospel of Luke around Mother's Day this past year, and then we took that up until beginning of, or excuse me, the beginning of July, and then we started our series in uh, the Creative Psalms. And so this Sunday, we're picking back up where we left off in the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be looking specifically this morning at Luke 3. But one of the questions that has arisen kind of within the church culture, within the, the evangelical church culture, is this idea of repentance. And one, what is repentance? And then two, the idea of repentance being separated from belief. I was listening to a person this week, and uh, I'll be honest with you, he drives me absolutely nuts. Uh, it's a, a guy, they call him the most hateful pastor in America. Some of you may have already seen him on YouTube. And I would agree with you that he is probably the angriest pastor that I have seen. Um, there are many that I've actually, you know, that you guys have probably experienced or witnessed. But I remember watching and listening to him, and he does genuinely, in my opinion, espouse hate. And what I'm not talking about is espouse hate necessarily the way that culture defines that. But his preaching just comes across with an absolute lack of love. On top of it, he has absolutely no ability to deal lovingly with sinners, those entrapped, those entangled in sin. When confronted by some others about this, he spoke of the fact that repentance with belief in terms of salvation was nothing more than a workspace salvation. That for a believer to have to repent and then believe on Christ, repentance becomes a work of the individual, not necessarily a work of God. And the truth is, is that repentance is a work of God. It is God working in our hearts, drawing us to Him, drawing us to Himself. And the reason I share that this morning is because repentance is a vital part of our belief in Jesus. When we come to Christ, when the passage of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, that belief encompasses two things. It encompasses repentance and faith. It is why John the Baptist begins his ministry, repent. It is why Jesus begins His ministry, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so, this morning, we're going to be diving back into Luke chapter 3, and we're going to be dealing with this idea of repentance and its place in our salvation, the purpose of repentance, what repentance looks like, and why we're called to it. And so let's go ahead and stand together this morning. We're going to be looking here at Luke 3, verses 1 through 20, and it says this, it says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, 
make, path, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warns you to come flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for the counsel of your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the reproving through your word. We thank you for the encouragement of your word. Lord God, may you implant your word on our heart this morning. Lord, move me to the side and may you bring your word forth in power. May it be your spirit who moves into our hearts. May it be your spirit who gives us understanding. And may we be a people who are repentant people who rest and trust in you, our Lord. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. So true repentance prepares the way to receive, and I want you in your notes to put, and experience, Christ's grace through faith. True repentance prepares the way to receive and experience Christ's grace through faith. Repentance prepares the way. That's what God is saying through His Word through John today. Is that repentance prepares the way. Now, it's been some time since we last were in Luke and the, the end of June. And similarly... I think it's fitting that there's a gap between the latter part of Luke 2 and the beginning of Luke 3. Roughly 15 years have passed 
since the events of the latter part of Luke 2, where Jesus, as an adolescent, was teaching in the temple. Now, Luke is writing to Theophilus, and if you recall, he's writing to Theophilus an orderly account that he or you or me may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. So the Gospel of Luke is an orderly account of Jesus' life. He's writing so that we may have confidence in the things about Christ. And so in verse 1 through 2, Luke immediately begins by providing a historical framework to the events of the Gospel. What Luke is sharing here is not a fairy tale. That's what he's pointing out. It's not a fairy tale. There's a television broadcaster who I used to enjoy. He was a broadcaster for the A's and for the Giants. He was for the Raiders, and now he's unfortunately, and maybe fortunately, for the 49ers. <laughs> but I remember one Christmas listening to him, and he was speaking about the Raiders at that time. But they were talking about having faith in things. And he said, you know, y'all, he's like, this whole Christmas thing, it's like having faith in Jesus. I thought that we kind of put the fairy tale to the myth, to the death. Yeah, it was rough. It was rough. And my heart went on about it in the sense of first it was kind of that annoyance and anger and then it was sadness because his eyes are blind to the truth of Jesus what Luke is saying here is that Jesus is no fairy tale he's not the Easter Bunny he's not Santa Claus he's no fairy tale he's true And so he begins right here, and he says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Etria, and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So Tiberius Caesar became Caesar in Rome around 13 and 14 AD. We know that historically, actually. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. And then a tetrarch was a ruler over the fourth. So wherever you see a tetrarch, it means the kingdom has been broken down into four segments. Herod's brothers ruled alongside of him. And so we see this nation broken down. Now there's a unique piece of history here that is interesting. Historically, Ananias, or Annas, as the high priest, there have been archaeological digs that have found findings that refer to Annas. Annas is an interesting character because Annas was the high priest of the temple at that time. The Roman government didn't like him, so they themselves appointed another high priest. They themselves, not Jews, but they appoint the Jewish high priest for them. That Jewish high priest is Caiaphas. And so, over the next 15 years, what we know is the Jewish people considered Annas to be the high priest, while the government of Rome considered Caiaphas to be the high priest. 
And when Luke writes this, he's writing from the perspective of saying, it doesn't really matter who you say is the high priest, it's occurring during this time. He's solidifying the historical framework, saying these are real events. And remember, he's writing to Theophilus, most likely a government leader, an orderly account of Christ, the Christ whose faith Theophilus is centered around. So we know then, 15 years into the the leadership or the rule of Tiberius Caesar, that puts us about 29 A.D. Pretty cool. We know the time frame of when Jesus' ministry began. We know roughly around the time frame when Jesus went to the cross. Luke once again is laying the framework. He's saying this is no myth, this is no fairy tale. I'm telling you the truth. Now in verse 3 through 4, we're told that he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now John is called out of the wilderness to proclaim a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as the promised forerunner or Messiah. And if you recall, this is the way the Gospel of Luke begins, is telling us that John will be the forerunner to the Messiah, preparing the way. Now it's coming to fruition, and it is the fulfillment of the promise in Isaiah of Isaiah 40, 3-5, or one who comes right before the Messiah, preparing the way for the Messiah to come. Now, it's important to know that it would have been understood at this time, specifically within the Roman culture, that kings always had someone preparing the way. When it was announced that a ruler was coming into the city, a courier would go out into the city and say, make the roadway straight, get the garbage out of the way, put it straight, make a clear path for the king. John is making a path for the king who is to come, Jesus And he's proclaiming a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, John's baptism is not the same kind of baptism we do today. The baptism that we believe that we do today is an identification with all those others who have repented and believed on Christ. The baptism that John the Baptist was offering was a different kind of baptism. It identified one who needs to turn from sin and receive forgiveness for their sin. It wasn't salvific, it didn't save them, and it wasn't even identifying the way that we believe baptism is today, it wasn't identifying them with other believers, it was simply the person coming before them saying, listen, I see the depth of my sin, and I need forgiveness. It was an acknowledgement of that. It was identifying them with that. You see, repentance is a changing of direction or a turning away from sin, and an acknowledgement of our need for forgiveness. That's what repentance is. It's a changing of direction. Now, you could call it a change of heart, a change of mind. The reason I choose to use that is there's a ton of debate, and it gets all confused. Here's what it is. It is a confession of your heart and mind that sees the depth of your own sin, 
and turns from it, seeing the need for the forgiveness of sin. That's what it is. Now, what we'll see when Jesus comes is that repentance and belief, it is a turning from and a turning towards. But at this moment, they are simply turning from. They're stepping away from that sin. They're acknowledging that they're sinners and they are in need of forgiveness. And that is the starting point for every person of faith. I remember early in ministry, somebody asking me, why do you talk about sin so much? Jesus talked about sin so much. And the reason He talked about sin so much is because you have no need for grace apart from sin. You cannot even see your need for grace apart from sin. It is the depth of our sin that allows us to see the need for grace. To see the need for forgiveness of sin. And so if one doesn't come to an understanding of their sin, they can't come to a place of saving faith in Jesus. It's a danger. It's a danger when we present the gospel void of our sinfulness. We see that today often preached. Where people will say, I don't like talking about sin. We have to. Nobody likes talking about sin. But you have to. Because it is when we see the depth of our own sin that when we see the, the depth of our own need for His grace, it is what God uses to draw us to Him. His loving kindness in the face of absolute destruction. It's an amazing thing. See, John is preparing the way by calling people to repentance. You can't have belief in Christ before you first need to know the depth of your own sin. Apart from seeing the depth of one's own sin, one will not see the need for or even experience Christ's grace. 2 Corinthians 7, 9-10 says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, or a godly sorrow, so that you suffered no loss through us, for godly grief or sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You see the difference there? Godly sorrow comes from seeing our sin and need for forgiveness of that sin. Worldly grief says, oh, I'm sorry, I hope to never do that again. Worldly grief says, oh, I'm sorry, but my sin isn't as bad as you might think. J. Logan Duncan says, you can't be forgiven of sin if you don't believe that you've sinned and need forgiveness. Repentance is the recognition of our need for forgiveness of sin, and therefore it is necessary for, for, for the forgiveness of sin. Stephen Cole puts it simply, and I like the way he says it. He says, you must face the bad news about yourself as a sinner before you can welcome God's gracious salvation. That's the truth. So, 
How does one know if repentance is genuine or true? Well, John is preparing the way. And he lays that out for us in verses 7 through 9. And we have a picture here then of true repentance. In verse 7 through 9, he said, Therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Now, this is not the greatest way to welcome people, right? (laughs) Think about that. They walk into your house, you brood of vipers, you pit of snakes, right? You don't even see how snaky you are, right? You came in to do destruction. You don't even recognize your own evilness. Hey, welcome, right? Now think about that for a minute. Think about that message. That's a message that today when we say, ah, I don't know if I ought to bring up people's sin or address the idea of sin, think about how John addresses sin here. Think about how Jesus addresses sin. Now, I wouldn't recommend this be your starting point, right? You brood of vipers. But John understood who he was dealing with. Matthew tells us that he was dealing with the Pharisees and Sadducees, but Luke tells us he actually says this to the multitudes as well. He doesn't simply look and say, yeah, I see your self-righteousness. He assumes that everyone is self-righteous. Aren't we? Don't we at times believe that we have it figured out, that we are self-sufficient, that we input ourselves into the place of God? We certainly, apart from Jesus, do. And so he immediately calls them, you brood of vipers. And then he says, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Who told you to do this? Two things are happening. One, he's pointing out their self-righteousness, the self-righteousness that exists in all of us in our sin nature. But then he points out this great question. Why do you think you need this? Who told you this? What he's pointing to is there is somebody greater than he, somebody greater than others, and somebody greater than themselves that is drawing them to that understanding. You brood of vipers, who warns you? And then he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Here's the thing. The first aspect of true repentance is that it humbly bears fruit. It humbly bears fruit. Humility is the first part of true repentance. The self-righteousness is gone. It's confronted. It's being addressed. It's being dealt with. And what he's saying here is he says, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Do not think that you are special or that you are a special circumstance for God's kingdom. You are special in Christ's eyes because you have been made in his image. Don't confuse that. Don't confuse that with that being the basis of your salvation in Jesus. When we say that we are uniquely and wonderfully made in Christ, don't assume that that means that then you are Christ. What he's saying here is there is no position apart from eventually what we'll see here in Christ. 
that allows us the freedom to be secure in our faith. Security comes not in who we are, but in who Jesus is. And what he's pointing out here is you can't look at yourself and say, well, I'm one of Abraham's children, therefore I got this nailed. He says, no. It's a posture of your own heart. Bear fruit of repentance. Bear fruit of your repentance. What was happening in those moments where there were those that were coming out that saw this as one more right Now, the rite of baptism at this point was a rite that was often given to the Gentiles who were seeking to become Jews. And it was kind of a symbol of a spiritual cleansing. When a Jew went to be baptized at this point, what he was acknowledging is he was as bad as those heathen Gentiles. And so it would not happen. It wasn't something that was going to to take place. And so when they would come out, it was kind of seen as this those who would come before them in an outward posture of humility. And what he was saying here is this. He was saying, John was telling them, listen, bear fruit of your repentance. Don't come here thinking that you've just done this, going away that, well, because I've done this, I'm now secure. What he's saying was, is that your repentance needs to bear fruit. That will tell the true condition of your heart. Alexander McLaren points out that John's crowds were eager to be baptized as an additional security, but were slow to repent. If heaven could be secured by submitting to a right, multitudes would come for it. But the crowd thins quickly when the administrator of that right becomes the vehement preacher of repentance. It's easy to come to something when it's a right, right? When it's a work. It's much different when the way that we come is through repentance. When we acknowledge our sin and see the depth of our sin and we turn from it. The most dangerous thing about sin is that sin is easy to love. And it is why God calls us to turn from it. Bruce Gatzi adds, if you have not truly repented, if you say you are a Christian but your life is not different, then quite frankly, you probably are not a true follower of Christ. If you're still living like all your non-believer friends, you are merely playing the church game and your faith is more convenience than reality. You may be fooling yourself, you may be fooling others, but you are not fooling God. And that's what he says here at, in verse 9 and 10. He says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. God knows. Your willingness to turn from sin, God knows. And in the end, that is what matters. And so he's saying, Bear fruit of repentance. And then the question comes, and what then shall we do? Well, this response is a little bit different than I think we often expect. But it will be the message going forward that Jesus uses where he begins to say to one another, love one another. Love one another as yourself. 
when he goes and he talks about fruit being born out, he talks about this love for one another because as we love Jesus with all of our heart, soul, and mind, we then stop loving self and start loving others. So listen to his response. What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came, and he said to them, Collect no more taxes that you are authorized to do. And then soldiers came to him, and he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. True repentance generously and honestly loves others even those considered enemies. Generously and honestly loves others, even those considered enemies. Right away, notice he hits three people groups. He hits the general population, he hits the tax collectors, and he hits the soldiers. Now, the general population, he says, listen, to which you have, if you have more and someone has none, give to them. Well, how does that line up with the soldier and the tax collector? Well, each of these actually deal with where people are placing their security in materialism, in finances. And what he's saying here is he's saying, listen, stop thinking and finding your security in yourself if you genuinely believe that you need repentance or you need forgiveness of sins, recognize that you begin to deal with people generously and honestly in love. Now, the tax collectors were not liked by the people. The soldiers were probably hated even more. The tax collectors were considered traitors. The soldiers were just considered bullies. And he says to them, Don't extort, just be honest. Don't take what's not yours, be honest. And so he calls us to deal with others generously and honestly. When somebody goes before another in repentance, the marks of that repentance deals with generous generosity and with honesty. When you're in sin and entrapped in sin, One of the best ways to tell when somebody's actually repentant is when it's all on the table. When it's been put out there, there's nothing more hidden. More importantly, they stop preserving themselves and they start seeking to serve others. As a child, right, you get caught in sin. What's the first temptation? I think it's true as an adult too, but what's the first temptation? We deal with that as parents, as children, right? It's the lie. You've got a choice to make, right? And you ever watch a lie unpack itself, right? First, it gets worse. It gets deeper. More lies go on. And then you realize, oh, this is getting ugly. I can't keep up this lie. So you try to dress it up, right? The truth is, is sin dressed up is just like a piece of poop with a bow tied around it, right? <laughs> Nobody wants that gift. And everybody knows it stinks, and it's squishy, and it's not right, right? That's what it's like when we try to repent without complete honesty. It just gets worse, and the person's stepping back and going, dude, you're still giving me that stinky gift. 
right? I don't care what it looks like. It's still poop. When we have that temptation in us to dress up sin, when we want to make it seem not as bad, we're not walking in true repentance. Our sin stinks. And all sin stinks. And so one of the marks of bearing fruit of repentance is an honesty around that sin. And it means that we deal honestly with others. It means that we deal generously with others and that we love others the way that Christ has loved us. And what he's telling him here is if you really see that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness of sins, you will love others in the same way. You will stop putting your security in the things of this world and you will start seeing that your security is not found there. And what does he say? He actually ties it to contentment. He says this to the soldier, be content with your wages. It's this idea that honesty includes this aspect of dealing with one another justly. What is right? When I come in repentance, I come in a generous love towards others. I come with generous honesty towards others, and that honesty includes dealing with people justly in a right manner. That's what he's saying. You want to bear fruit of repentance? You deal in honest and generous love that is just towards both those that you like and those that you don't. I remember years ago, uh, I was in a situation and I had a person that was truthfully hard for me to deal with. And the person was kind of a downer all the time but was also a gossip. And so I remember one person came to me and said, hey, I'm going to have dinner with this person. And I said, oh, have fun. <laughs> and I said, just wait for this dinner to come. And they're like, what's happening? And I'm like, I don't know, man. You're going to have fun, though. And my attitude was just atrocious, actually, towards this person in my spirit. And I'll tell you, within five minutes, my spirit became just absolutely convicted. And everything in my power was to say, don't go and talk to this person. But I realized that I had maligned the name of this person to somebody else. So I committed, after two hours of battling in my head whether I should go talk to this person or not, because I'm a slow learner, I committed that on that Sunday I'd sit at the back of the service and I would wait for that person to come in. So all service, I sat at the back of that service and this person didn't come in and I thought, thank you, Lord, you must not want me to do this. <laughs> and with five minutes left in that service, they walked in and sat right behind me. I thought, I guess, God, you really do want me to do this. Every temptation in my heart was to dress it up. And I remember speaking to this person, and I said, I said some unkind things about you, and I should never have done that. 
and everything in my power wanted to go, but you know, you're a difficult person. <laughs> and I feel quite justified. And if you weren't like that, I wouldn't have ever said that. But that wasn't the truth. The truth was in me. And I remember this person looking at me and said, man, well, I want to know more about me. What causes me to do this? And I said, this isn't about you in this way. We can talk some other time. This is about me. I've sinned against you. And I should have never harbored those feelings without having come and talked to you. And no one should have known those feelings if I hadn't talked to you. Repentance is not always easy. It's turning from what gives us security and comfort, and it seeks to love others with generosity and honor, even those that we don't like. The same is before the Lord. We come in a posture where that fruit is being borne out in our lives. It's not just a simple statement of seeing my sin. It's the fact that I see my sin and I turn from it. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is what sin do we love? And are we willing to turn from it? Because if we're unwilling to turn from the sins that we love, we are not genuinely repentant. And if we are willing to turn from the sin, it leads us into a place of loving others selflessly, generously, honestly, and justly. Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Now, John is being questioned here then, is this the Messiah? He's the one calling us to account. He's the one telling us that we need to bear fruit of repentance and instructing us as to how we are to live. And the people were questioning in their heart. And verse 16 says that John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the other aspect of true repentance is that it's empowered and confirmed by Christ in his salvation. The truth is, is that John the Baptist is calling them to repentance, but they cannot sustain that repentance apart from this new baptism they receive in Jesus. There will be one who is coming that will no longer baptize with water, but will baptize with what? The Holy Spirit and fire. Your repentance is empowered by God. It is empowered by the Spirit. And so if we are going to live a repentant life, it is the Spirit that is at work within us. More than that, when we come to Christ, it'll be the Spirit that is granted to us. Why is Jesus' baptism better than John's? John's is just a baptism identifying people who are in need of forgiveness. Jesus' baptism gives forgiveness and secures eternal life with Him. A baptism of the Spirit and a fire. 
2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22 says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That's the beauty. Jesus' baptism's better, but unless we see our sin, we don't see our, our need for Jesus. We have to see our need, or excuse me, we have to see our sin before we can see our need for Jesus. And so true repentance is empowered. It's empowered and confirmed by Christ and his salvation. A person who claims to be a follower of Christ but does not bear fruit of their repentance, the word is telling us, question whether you genuinely have made Christ the Lord of your life. You should not have security in your salvation. Because the Holy Spirit will bring about the fruit of that repentance as you submit to Him. John the Baptist was preparing the way. Repentance prepares the way. It prepares the way to see our need for God's grace. And it is why it precedes faith. John the Baptist is the promised forerunner, making the way straight. Now, apart from this baptism with Christ, we can't actually experience the blessing of this true repentance. You see, Romans 2.5 says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You see, we're baptized with the Holy Spirit in fire. The Spirit comes into our lives, seals us, empowers us to walk in righteousness, empowers us to repent of sin, empowers humility in our life. This fire that's speaking about, this is a purging fire. In the life of the one who has come to Jesus, this fire is designed to root out all of the impurities. It's to, to push it all out. It's to refine You see, apart from that, apart from Jesus, apart from His grace, we will consistently fail at trying to walk in righteousness. Can't do it. But the Holy Spirit does it with fire. He burns it out. As we submit to Him, He continues to burn it out. And that's why for those of you who have experienced or been mastered by some sin in your life and are experiencing victory... That's because the Holy Spirit is burning that out, processing it out, refining it, taking it out. That's what He's doing. The other thing that God is doing in this time is He's taking His winnowing fork. And His winnowing fork is like a pitchfork. He takes that and He throws up everything that's going on. And what he does is amongst 
that pile of wheat is a lot of chaff. They throw that window and fork up into the air. The fan is set on. The fan blows. The wheat kernels are heavier. They fall back down, but the chaff blows away. And what he says here is powerful. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. God knows those who are repentant and those who are not. And in the end, he will separate you from it. For the believer, for those who put their faith in Christ, it will be as if the wheat has fallen back to the floor and gathered up by the Father. But for those whose repentance is not, real and genuine, those that's repentance is not bearing fruit, those whose repentance is not rooted in this generous and honest love for others, they'll be blown away. But it's not blown away to another floor. He says it is blown away to be burned in an unquenchable fire. That should cause great fear for us. If you don't know Christ, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, if you have not chosen to walk in repentance and belief on Christ, God Himself is saying that the punishment for that is an unquenchable fire. Separated. Alexander McLaren declares this. He says, There are two fires, to one or other of which we must be delivered. Either we shall gladly accept the purging fire of the Spirit which burns sin out of us, or we shall have to meet the punitive fire which burns us up and our sins together. To be cleansed by the one or to be consumed by the other is the choice before each of us. That's the choice. So true repentance then bears fruit. It's generous and honest love for others, even those that are considered enemies. And it's empowered and confirmed by Christ in His salvation. Now, all believers are called to preach this message. To proclaim this message of repentance and faith. But it's important to know that the end of this story doesn't have the happy fairy tale ending that we like. Not yet. Because it says, with so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this then to the all, that he locked up John in prison. Proclaiming repentance may have a high cost, but the cost of Christ's judgment is even greater. Proclaiming repentance may have a high cost, but the cost of Christ's judgment is even greater. The gospel will be offensive. We are not called to be offensive. Do you see the difference? The gospel will be offensive in and of itself. 
But we are not the ones called to be offensive. We are called to be the proclaimers of this gospel. Everybody loves a Savior. Very few people like to deal honestly and generously with their sin. And so it is that when you address sin in one's life, it will often be met with resistance. And in some case, it may be often be met with your own imprisonment. But remember, the call that God has given you is to be faithful to this gospel. And the call is not that you be the offensive one, but that the gospel is. Love others with fruit of repentance. Proclaim the gospel knowing that it may be received in an offensive way, but don't be the offense to the gospel. May this be our hope, and may this be our way. May we be a people who are a repenting people, steadied, firm, and confirmed in the grace of Christ. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for the goodness of your grace. Thank you for your loving concern over us, God. May we take to heart and rejoice over the fact that John the Baptist led the way, calling people to repentance. And as a result of seeing our sin, you have led us to your grace. Thank you for showing us the depth of our sin. Thank you for calling us to repentance. And may we be a repentant people who are empowered in the hope of your grace, in the goodness of your spirit, and refined by your purifying fire. And we ask this in your name. Amen.